The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Well, if you've got your copies of God's Word, would you turn with me to Genesis? I'm going to read about five texts for you tonight in this um, study of the sanctity of life in our series. May I remind you of the series, Genesis. We're looking at God's blueprint for life and by establishing the foundations of life from the book of origins, and that is the book of Genesis. And we are attempting to lay them down as uh, foundational pillars for developing a Christian world and life view as you exist in a secular world with man-centered world and life views and the numerous isms whereby they're manifested. And what does it mean to have a God-centered world and life view that is biblically framed, Christ-focused as we saw last week, spirit-enabled, and uh, God-glorifying? What does that look like? And uh, it's my privilege to dive into one of those issues tonight. We have already looked at a number of, of, of these foundational issues. We've already looked at a number of them. In fact, we have looked at five sanctities, five foundational sanctities from the book of Genesis. We have, number one, we have covered the sanctity of divine revelation. God is a God who reveals himself. That's why he bears the attribute light. And God has revealed himself in creation and God has revealed himself in in his word. Secondly is the sanctity of God. God having revealed himself in creation and in his word has revealed himself as thrice holy and existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one God. And then we looked at the sanctity of creation. God has done three great works, creation, redemption, and is doing the work of providence. And the first one we looked at is the sanctity of creation by examining the creation week. And then we went to a fourth sanctity, and that was man made in the image of God, male and female. And then we went to a fifth sanctity, which is the sanctity of gender. The sanctity of gender may, that God has made man male and female, and both are required to properly image God. Now, it's at this point, you've got to kind of track with me just for a minute, and that is um, we are not through with the sanctity of gender. I have inserted a sixth sanctity because of what Brian mentioned, that we take the Lord's Day closest to the remembering the unconstitutional, fabricated, invented by social and political pressure, Roe v. Wade decision, which has given legal precedent and permission and um, uh, to take the life of the preborn. And um, so that's, that exists. 
As, um, as I mentioned this morning, Brian just affirmed, uh, we are looking at the 49th year of that, um, of that particular uh, ruling. I'm praying it doesn't see a 50th anniversary. I'm praying that God would bring it to an end with some sensible constitutional and thereby biblically uh, and there and as well as a biblical affirmation of the sanctity of life and and at least bring some relief from this culture of death that has absolutely uh, m- multiplied geometrically out of that sanctity of um, out of the Roe v. Wade decision assaulting the sanctity of life. The unwanted, the imperfect, and the inconvenient child in the womb uh, has been assaulted with a full genocidal impact. We are looking at right now, since that over these 49 years, approximately in our own country, 63 million children who have died. 63 million. Pastor, aren't you concerned as you go into the sanctity of life tonight? Uh, aren't you concerned for the women in crisis? Absolutely. Because right now they are being told that those who have developed the industry of abortion and all of its profit making, the industry of the, of the selling of organs and body parts out of the abortion industry, that they have been convinced through the, through the coalition of the culture shapers in our society, the academy, uh, big business, including big uh, pharma, uh, including uh, the deep state bureaucracy that continually looks to gather power, including the media, and the entertainment world and concluding and including journalism, uh, that they have been convinced of what actually is counterproductive and that this that is said to be a solution to an unwanted child or an inconvenient child or an imperfect child is given as a solution. And we are fully aware that that that's that is no solution. It actually creates more and greater problems, not only in society, but in the lives of these precious women. That's why I'm very grateful for all of these uh, ministries that we have, from uh, lawyers to life, to doctors for life, nurses for life, uh, the um, the organi- organizing ministry, and the um, uh, our own abortion recovery that Heather does. Uh, that um, the Save-A-Lives, the uh, Lifeline Adoption Agency with all of its attendant ministries so that we cover this because the sanctity of life is rooted in the Sixth Commandment. You shall not murder. But I want you to remember this. I want you to remember that whenever you get a commandment from God, eight of them are given in the negative. Two of them are given in the positive. Remember the Sabbath day and honor your father and mother. But whether it's given in the positive or the negative, the commandments of God are built on a sanctity. And do not murder is built on the sanctity of life. 
And whenever you have the negative given, do not murder, the positive is anticipated. The, the commandments of God are like elliptical figures that whenever the inside it is the sanctity the sanctity of life one pole the negative is what you don't do to observe the sanctity of life and whatever is on that point you go to the other point and the other point is required so if there's an admonition in God's law it calls it I'm sorry if there's a prohibition in God's law it calls for an admonition a positive response so you don't commit murder but we do commit life. And the answer to the inconveniences, imperfections, and difficulties of life are not found in the taking of life. That has significant ramifications. Can I give you an example? Uh, And my example for you is a program that I just did for Today in Perspective. In fact, I think it may be airing this coming week. Um, there is a video that has gone viral, uh, a video that comes from a camera in the back of a loading dock overlooking the parking lot, which included a dumpster. And a young lady uh, in Texas um, gave birth in a bathroom, put the child in a plastic, black plastic bag, rode by and tossed it into the dumpster. Uh, you know, my my uh, angst over that is um, it doesn't really know much bounds. Uh, my heart for what has happened in a woman's life that she would be able to do that um, is just um, overwhelmed in considerations. But when it's seen, when something like that is seen, There's this revulsion. How can that be? When that video is unfolded in front of you, and you know what's in that plastic bag that's being thrown into the dumpster. But the reality is, there's two things about this. Number one one is, that's exactly what happens in an abortuary every day. What parts can't be sold are thrown away like refuse. And women suffer from that as they move through life. There were better solutions and people there to help and minister. I know 14 ministries that would be there for you. I've watched men in this congregation see a woman that says, like, for instance, a life on wheels moment, and says, no, I'm not going to make that, that uh, decision. And I've seen some men in this church step up and pay for the medical. I've seen some men and women step up to assist them and give them a place in their home. And that's exactly what needs to take place. That we have this full scope ministry that not only says you shall not murder, but says let's commit life. Let's commit life together. In Christ. Let's, let's address these issues redemptively. But it begins with a right view of life. Life is not a Darwinian defined accident of mutations. God has created life, designed life, 
and given life. And that's where our worldview starts, right there. If you don't affirm that in a culture, then the culture will embrace a culture of death. And the death won't simply be the lives of the innocent, that is by human standards, innocent in the most, what ought to be the most protected place, the womb. Then it moves to the end of life, the helpless. And then it moves to the inconvenient in life, even if they've already been born. And then, and then we see it moving to the death of the institutions that are there for life. The death of marriage, the death of family, the death of, um, uh, the death of, of how you live in life, the death of gender. Now what I hope to do after taking a few minutes tonight with this is to return to that fifth sanctity and that is the sanctity of gender. And I want to take at least one, maybe three Sunday nights to look at biblical masculinity and then take one to three Sunday nights to look at biblical femininity. What does God's word say? Not stereotypical definitions, but what does God's word say? Our problem today in many circles is not masculinity. Well, what about toxic masculinity? Yes, but what's the antidote? Well, biblical masculinity is the antidote. What about femininity? What would God say? What does it mean to be a woman of God? What does it mean to be a man of God? So I would like to take probably somewhere between from two to six weeks to work through those two masculinity and femininity with you. But now we've added the sixth sanctity, and that's the sanctity of life. And I'd like you to look at a couple of passages of Scripture with me. Would you take your Bibles and go with me to Genesis? And would you go with me to uh, chapter uh, to chapter 1, where we are instructed that God has created all things. Now watch this again. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then comes the seven, uh, the six days of creation and the seventh day of the Sabbath, working through Genesis 2-4. Now notice that what this is saying to us, God does not explain his existence. He affirms his existence. God is eternal. What he gives the information is where does space, time, and matter come from? Here are the heavens. There's space. Here is the earth. There's matter. Here is in the beginning. There is time. Where does time and space and matter come from? We call this ex nihilo creation. God created it from nothing. There was, at the beginning of space, time, and matter, there was nothing, this God himself. The three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with nothing lacking. And then God, not out of need, but God, out of his sovereign decrees, creates. And he creates by his spoken word. But once he has brought space, time, and matter into existence in a heavens and an earth, then his creation no longer is immediate, but it's mediatorial creation. Now, everything he's using to create in the days of creation, everything he's using came from 
ex nihilo or immediate creation. But now he takes what he has created and he now brings forth that which he desires from the space, time, and matter that he brings into existence. So if you'll slip down with me in Genesis and you will find that God then makes man on the sixth day, verse 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created them. And it requires what? Male and female to image God. Male and female, he created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the, of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding fruit, um, yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every, <clears throat> and to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life that God has brought the breath of life to his creation. I have given them, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Then comes the Sabbath. Then in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 5, God begins to bring us focus to explaining the creation and in the dynamics of the sixth day. You've got the earth. And you've got the a place that God has made for man, his home, and a place for God to dwell with him. It was the garden. And when the, when no bush of the field, verse five, uh, was yet in the was in the land, and no small plant on the field had sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain in the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was coming up from the land and was watering the whole face of the earth. Then the Lord God formed the man, now notice, not ex nihilo, he takes what he's already created. He takes man, he forms man, the physical elements of man was formed from the dust, from the ground. And he breathed into him, his nostrils, the, there's that phrase, the breath of life. And the man became And I prefer the NAS translation here. The man became a living soul. That's what makes us in the image of God. It's not our bodies. They come in the image of your parents. They come from the dust of the ground. God has no body. God is spirit. And when God breathes in his spirit, that's what identifies us and gives us life. Until he breathes in our spirit, and man becomes a soulish living creature. That man is existing now. And now he has life, and he has life within him. That's why death is, de- is give the definition of death is what? The separation, James 2.28, the separation of the soul from the body. But now there's a body, then he breathes into the body. In other words, here's physical, here's spiritual, two threads 
woven into one cloth. Here is a living being. That's why we do not say, I don't say, they had a natural death. I don't believe there's anything natural about death. Death is an adverse adversary. It is an enemy. It is an intruder. Death is the result of sin, not creation. That's a Darwinian view. Our view is that death is not a part of creation. Death is the result of sin itself. So here is, here is, um, man that is now made physical and spiritual and the man is now a living creature. So then comes the garden is planted. He puts the man where he's formed him and out of the ground he caused, uh, uh, and out of the ground the Lord caused to, uh, to be made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then we've got a river that's flowing through it. Now go down to verse 19. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To, here's another phrase for that. To tend it and defend it. That's what he puts him in there. To tend it. In other words, we're going to make it a garden. It's not going to become a jungle. I have you to have dominion over the creation. I have you to subdue the earth. I have you to um, uh, to be fruitful and multiply. So the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you You shall not eat for in the days that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now the creator has given a creation mandate to the to man who was created in his image and exists now as male. And he now takes this creation mandate with all of its positive statements, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth and have dominion over the creation. And now he introduces a fourth one with a negative, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and that's what god now and that's what god now calls him to do then the lord god said it is not good that the man should be alone i will make him a helper fit for him now, it is not that it was not good for the man to be alone in the sense of his relational um, uh, liabilities no he's got god so he's not relationally shortchanged. When it says it's not good for man to be alone, he is speaking of the mandate to subdue the earth, to have dominion over the creation, and to be fruitful and multiply. The man names the beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. He names them. He defines them as God has created them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Note the righteousness of Adam. Out of his need, he doesn't pervert the creation. He remains faithful to God's creation mandate and names them. That means he's got authority over them and he defines them according to what God has decreed in his creation. He does not pervert it in order to have a helpmate. So there is not one for him, but he needs one to be able to do this mandate. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep 
to he found uh, for the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his robes ribs and closed it up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, "This is la- this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man." Now the words that are being used there are she is ish for man, isha, different but reflective of the man. So that uh, so that there is a difference, a distinction, but reflective of the man. And she shall be called that because she was taken out of the man. And then, of course, comes the sanctity of marriage that we are yet going to study. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So let me just stop there. So here is the given. Now, notice something is that what is life? You've got to have the physical and the spiritual. That's life. Intertwined together. Note when God makes man, he makes him from something he has already created and spoken into existence. The dust of the ground, the dust of the earth. Note the appropriateness of that. What is Adam's job before God? Subdue the what? Hello? You know, now y'all got to step up here a little bit, okay? I mean, I'm just, listen, I'm, I'm concerned about you. We had 2,000-something people here that I think thought the Sunday evening service was at 2.30 today. And I don't see them tonight. So I need some help here. And uh, you got to step up and fill in for me. And by the way, ladies, talking about this masculine feminine, I need to do a series on this. I'm, I mean, I know it's no competition, but I hate the men just really out seeing y'all. I mean, you got to, I know you're not laughing. You got to step up. You got to start learning to step up here and sing. I mean, these men, they're singing. I, I don't, I, I, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I know it's not a competition, but I think we won. <laughs> so here is male and female. Why would I say what I just said? Because women's voices are different than men's. Men's voices are different than women's. God's made us different. We need to understand the sanctity of gender. And we need to understand it in all of its fullness. And God even shows it in how he creates. Here is man. Subdue the earth. Multiply and fill the earth. Multiply and fill the earth. Have dominion over the whole earth. When he makes man, he takes him from the dust of the ground of the earth. But he can't do it unless the full image-bearing reflection of God is in place. He doesn't take Eve from the dust of the ground. He takes Eve from what she is being created to do. And that's to fit alongside of Adam. He's, she is taken from his side, so she becomes the helper. There's a name for Jesus. Helper. There's a name for the Holy Spirit. She becomes the helper, completer, 
so that as one, as formally announced in the covenant of marriage, as one, they can now serve the Lord and fulfill this creation mandate. And they're living. And there is no death. And here is life with the Lord in the garden, serving the Lord to subdue the earth, be fruitful and multiply, and to have dominion over the earth that he has created. But you're aware that sin comes in. And then when sin comes in, death comes in. The day you eat of it, you shall die. There's spiritual death, there's physical death, there is eternal death. I want to show you something in the Bible that I think is important at this moment. There are, about this, particularly looking at the sanctity of life, there are three times in the book of Genesis that sin, which brings death, the consequences of sin in the earth comes up to God and brings God down in judgment. There's three times in the book of Genesis. I want you to look at them with me. Would you take your Bibles and go with me to Genesis chapter 18? Genesis chapter 18. Now, what I just went through, uh, we'll be back there. So if you didn't get it, hang on. Just come the next couple of Sundays. We'll be back there. But look with me in Matthew 18, um, Genesis 18, excuse me, where God has come in a theophany, Jesus, a Christophany, a second person of the Trinity. Jesus comes with two angels. And he, of course, affirms the covenant promise that he's going to give him a seed and he is going to make him a blessing to all the nations and he is going to bring forth a seed that is going to bring redemption. <clears throat> and you're not only going to have a family, you're going to be made a nation and a nation through which I will bring blessing to all the nations. And then as the meeting ends, uh, Jesus, this, the, uh, this Christophany of Jesus can, um, uh, is um, uh, is coming to a conclusion in the meeting. He turns. Look at 18 and verse 22. So the men returned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you, and, I'm sorry, and then Abraham drew near and said, and he began to negotiate with Jesus concerning uh, forestalling the judgment upon Sodom. Why was there going to be a judgment upon Sodom? Well, I want you to back up in Genesis 18 and look at verse 16. Then the men, the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep, uh, to keep, um, uh, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Behold, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. 
there was a grave sin embraced by these city-states, and the cry came out to the Lord. What will the Lord do? I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. If not, I will know. In other words, God always affirms the judgments by evidence. And what has happened? An outcry of their sin has come up. Sexual anarchy, sexual promiscuity, sexual perversion. All of that was taking place throughout Sodom and Gomorrah. And the outcry came up and the Lord comes down in judgment. And these cities are ultimately destroyed. Though Lot himself is rescued. I want you to take your Bibles and go back with me now to Genesis uh, chapter 11. Go with me to Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11 it says... Um, that um, the Noah has come out of the ark, uh, that man is now multiplying. And what was man supposed to do? Multiply. Remember, Noah was given what Adam was given. He was to multiply and do what? Do you remember? Fill the earth. But he doesn't. He rebels against God's command. How does he rebel? Look at chapter 11 and verse 1. That the whole earth had one language and the same agenda. I mean, sorry, and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city. So the origin of the city is an act of rebellion. Now, I'm not saying we take the gospel to the cities, certainly. But the city was a, was a statement of rebellion against God. And then they said, let us make a city, not let us fill the earth. Let's make a city and come together. And we'll build a tower in this city-state with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed we're not going to fill the earth we're going to come together to make a name for ourselves and that means we have to provide a man-made religion whereby we can control the hearts of men so, and the Lord, and so what does they, they say? Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the old earth. And the Lord God, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And, and nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Except, of course, by God's sovereign intervention to stop total depravity from coming as absolute depravity. In other words, why was there a flood? The flood was there in Genesis chapter 6 because man had become evil in all that he thought and did. And God brought judgment. And in his grace, 
he established a covenant of redemption with Noah and his family. Now Noah and his family have been um, deposited, and now they're being uh, they're being multi- they're multiplying, but they are not filling the earth. And you see, the heart of the problem with man is not the environment, but the heart of man. As they decide to build an environment of rebellion against God, they do not want to be dispersed, so they come together, and now total depravity, unless God's grace restrains it, will become absolute depravity. And so come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may, uh, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel because the Lord confused. We get the word Babel as well from this. Confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them. In other words, God gets his promises done, not through redemption, but through judgment as he as he comes down and brings judgment. Now, by the way, I can't help but do this. Please allow me to do it. And so when Jesus comes, our Redeemer, what is the glorious testimony that he has come to go to all of these nations with the gospel, but Pentecost, where supernaturally the languages of the nations that were gathered and Joel 2 was fulfilled. What is Pentecost? The reversal of Babel. That's what it is. And a declaration of the Messiah having come in the fulfillment of that prophecy. But so now you've seen two occasions where man's sin goes up and God comes down in judgment. There's one other. Take your Bibles and go back with me to Genesis 4. I've reversed them uh, for a reason. But if you would, go back with me now to Genesis 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. In other words, Abel's worship was acceptable. Cain's worship was not, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. In other words, he went into an emotional depression because of God's rejection of his worship that was not faithful to what God had commanded. If you do well, then he, then no. So what does God say to Cain? Verse six, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. He says, why, are you, why is your face down? If you do well, would not your worship be accepted? If you had done true worship, would it not be accepted? But you did not do well, therefore it is not accepted. And what you're now, what I'm now revealing to you is sin has hold of you. It's like a lion crouching at the door to seize its prey. But you must deal with it. So Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother 
And Abel had killed him. Now, by the way, just a word, uh, parenthesis here. I know you're, what I just read, you're saying, oh, well, why didn't he accept it and all of that? Can y'all just kind of set that aside? Because there's a sanctity in the book of Genesis. We're going to cover this on Sunday nights called the sanctity of worship. And that sanctity is taught right there in that text. So we'll be back to the sanctity of worship. But the worshiper that was, his worship was rejected. What is his solution? Repentance? No, no. That's not his, that's not his envy, jealousy, and he's going to solve the problem. How? Well, and uh, he rose up against his brother and he killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. I am, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me. From the ground. And so God comes down in judgment. Just a couple of thoughts and then we'll close in prayer. So here is a city state that have risen up in rebellion against God with sexual anarchy, sexual perversion, and sexual promiscuity. And God comes down in judgment. Does that sound familiar to y'all? The A city-states who rise up with sexual immorality, sexual anarchy, sexual promiscuity, sexual perversion, and call evil good and good evil, and light darkness and darkness light. And God comes down in judgment. Here's a city-state that says we're not going to obey God, and we're not going to have him as God. The city-state will be the God. We will build our own way to heaven. We don't need a God to come down and save us. We will provide the salvation. And we will build the way to heaven. And God does come down. Not in salvation. But in judgment. The messianic idolatry of the state. Does that sound familiar? Folks, when I look at those first two things, I wonder why the hand of God's judgment has not fallen to obliterate us. Except the Lord is patient, giving us an opportunity to proclaim the gospel and call men to faith and repentance in Christ. And then I go to Cain, and the blood of the innocent, Jesus says, is coming up into heaven and he comes down in judgment upon Cain one murder we're at 63 million children right now 63 million scores and scores of millions that we've set the pace to kill throughout the nations of the world It absolutely astonishes me that the Lord has not brought the thunder of heaven upon us. And even Christians, with the influence of progressive Christianity, now evangelical churches will preach on the sins that the culture tells them to preach on, but are silent. I just did another program to defend my friend uh, John MacArthur who called for ministers 
on the Sunday before to preach on biblical sexuality in support of other ministers in Canada that are being targeted. And I heard the smallness of preachers responding to that. Why, boys, who's he to tell me what to preach on? Well, you don't have to preach on it because John MacArthur says it. But you need to consider what he says. And maybe you need to preach on it because the Bible says. That's why. And be thankful that somebody called your attention to it. This infantile, adolescent response of pastors to other pastors who would encourage us to be faithful to God's word. I think what's really behind it is they don't want to deal with these issues because the culture stands in opposition and tells them we're going to cancel you. We are going to shut you down. That's why I'm using that illustration because John MacArthur, along with thousands of pastors, and if somebody called and said, Harry, did you do what John asked? I said, no, because I was already doing that. I got a whole series on this right now. So I didn't have to do a special one. But I'd have been willing to. I mean, I don't, I, you know, he's not my bishop, but I'd be willing to listen to his counsel and evaluate, should I have done that? Should we dip the, cross, the, the shot across the bow and tell the government, you can think you're the Messiah and you can control religion all you want to and the voice of the pulpit, but we are going to be faithful. So John preached that sermon on biblical sexuality from Romans 1. His sermons are published every week. Y'all know that? Hello, you all know that? Okay, as a free advertisement for John. They canceled that one. YouTube took it off. The culture says no. Now what will we say? Will we be faithful to God's word or not? You shall not murder. I understand crisis pregnancies. I understand imperfect children. I under, not because I'm saying mine were, but they were sinners to be saved by grace. I understand inconvenience. I understand imperfections. I understand unwanted pregnancies. I understand that. But the solution is not man saying, I will give life. I will take life. But for us to affirm the sanctity of life. Now immediately there's a question out there. And I'll close with this. This will be one that y'all can come up and talk to me afterwards. I'll give you a reason to come up and talk to me afterwards. Well, Harry, if you're for sanctity of life, why do you believe in capital punishment? You know what my answer is? Because I believe in sanctity of life. And whenever, by biblical process, with multiple witnesses, it is proved that we premeditatedly take life, then, for the sanctity of life, the punishment has to fit the crime. And the declaration needs to be made. Life is precious. Is there manslaughter? That's different. Is there homicide two and three? That's different. But those premeditated homicides... God is clear in the book of Genesis and in his law that he has appointed the government to preserve life, not to create fabricated court decisions to shroud the unjust taking of life from the defenseless and the innocent.
So I thank God for all these ministries. I thank God for you that we can be involved in it. I know for many of you, you've arrived at this. Some of you are working your way through it. I am available to discuss this at any point in time with you. But I will end with this. Very few people here have families that are untouched by abortion, and maybe you personally. I want you to know that Jesus Christ loves to receive us when we confess our sins and put our trust in him. I want you to know that he can take the ashes of our sinful decisions in life and turn them into roses for the testimony of God's grace in our life. All we need to do is agree with God about our sin and come to God who has made the way for us to be saved and then sent out. You will be shocked to know And I'm not going to betray confidences. All these people that we in these 14 ministries, you know what I'm excited about? I think about nine or ten of them come from members of Briarwood who, when they got discipled, realized that was their passion and their gifts. And these things began to develop in all of these significant areas for this uh, panoply of ministry in this area. But you would be amazed at how many are in this ministry because of what they've had to deal with in their life. And when you've known the sweetness of forgiveness and newness in life, you can't wait to get into it for the sake of others. You just can't wait to do it. So, yes, I am fully aware, as some of you said to me, you know, pastors, there are not many churches that are dealing with this issue. I know that. But we will. By God's grace. We will cry out for the Lord. For the Lord has already come down. To bear our judgment so that we can have life. And by God's grace, salt and light of his church will bring a culture of life that will honor men and women from all the ethnicities as image bearers of God and love them rightly in Christ. From the womb to the tomb, to the glory of God who alone can redeem. Father, thank you for the moments we've been able to be together. Thank you that we've been able to enjoy a Lord's Day, and we have been able to address issues that are difficult, but your word can guide us, your spirit conduct us, and we might be able to give praise to your name, not only in knowing forgiveness, but in sharing the forgiveness of Christ and bringing to others, there is a better way. In Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. I pray in his name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.